that I give, I'm going to try and tie these things up together, is something which goes by the name of dependent origination. Paticca Samapada in um, Pali. This particular teaching is probably the, um, the deepest teaching in the Nikayas, in the Buddhist texts, uh, the primary sources, obviously, for what we're doing. Paticca Samapada, dependent origination, is not easy to understand. In fact, there's a lovely beginning. Um, there's a text in the Digha Nikaya, which is uh, the Long Discourses of the Buddha, for those who are not familiar with these terms, um, in which, which is known as the Mahanidana Sutta. It's usually translated as the Great Text on Causation, or something like that. And uh, Ananda, who's the Buddha's attendant, and is um, not terribly bright a lot of the time, uh, Ananda actually says one day to the Buddha, he says, uh, this teaching of dependent origination, it's, uh, it's difficult, but I think I understand it. And the Buddha goes, think again, Ananda. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, this teaching is profound. When the Buddha ever says that, when he says profound, he means it's really, really difficult. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and also, what he's really trying to indicate by this use of the term, it's profound, is that it's not just about intellectually understanding. It's about seeing it in operation. Um, much of, and I know we're not doing it in this particular retreat, but much of what is Vipassana is actually discerning the links of dependent origination uh, and trying, in a sense, to cut some of the linkage here. Now, prima facie, what I'm going to speak about this evening doesn't automatically have, seemingly have a direct relevance. Hopefully I will make it so as we go through. Um, if not tonight, in the subsequent talks that I give to try and bring it together. Because it is the most important teaching in terms of, if you want to call it doctrine, um, and it is, as I say, the most difficult, even based on the Buddha's own evidence. In this text, and you can read this as well, uh, in this text, in the Udana, which is the first text in here, we have a little text, which, in fact, we have three little texts, which are all basically entitled Under the Bodhi Tree. And they detail out what happened on the night of the Buddha's awakening. Uh, what, is, what was actually the content of the Buddha's awakening. I'll only read you one, because I think you'll get the point when I explain to you how the other three go in a minute. He says, thus have I heard, I don't like that, it's so archaic, it's I've heard him say. <laughs> at one time the Lord was staying at Uravela, beside the river Naranja, at the foot of the Bodhi tree, having just realised full awakening. At that time the Lord sat cross-legged for seven days, experiencing the bliss of liberation. Then at the end of those seven days the Lord emerged from that concentration and gave well-reasoned attention during the first watch of the night to dependent arising in forward order, thus. This being, that is. From the rising of this, that arises. That is, with ignorance as a condition, volitional activities come to be. With volitional activities as condition, consciousness comes to be. With consciousness as a condition, name and form come to be. With name and form as a condition, the sixfold sense base comes to be. With the sixfold sense base 
as a condition, contact comes to be. With contact as a condition, feeling comes to be. With feeling as a condition, craving comes to be. With craving as a condition, grasping or attachment, as another translation, comes to be. With grasping as a condition, being comes to be. With being as a condition, birth comes to be. With birth as a condition, ageing and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair come to be. This is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. Then on realising its significance, the Lord uttered on that occasion this inspired utterance. Actually, the title of this text, Dudana, actually means inspired utterance. Uh, When things become manifest to the ardent meditating Brahmin, a synonym there for the practitioner, all his doubts soon vanish, since he understands each thing along with its causes. And the second text goes on to say, um, when the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree and gained awakening, what did he see? He saw dependent origination in reverse order. And the third little text says, and what was the content of the Buddha's awakening? When he understood things and really saw them, he understood dependent origination in forward and backwards order. Um, The Buddha also is not hooked. You've actually got in there the description of the full 12 links of dependent origination. However, um, sometimes the Buddha gives as little as nine links in the chain to make a point, uh, to show the condition we're in. Now, effectively what we've got here in the linkages (laughs) of dependent origination, which I'll go into in a few minutes, what we've got is a description of how we create samsara. We're really clever little beings. We create samsara at the drop of a hat. Uh, And that is a description of how we do it. Because all 12 links arise in one moment. They don't necessarily have to rise over linear time. They're all arising together. They all interact together. The linear description of it, the way it's laid out, is just for teaching purposes. That is all. Sometimes you'll see this in Tibetan iconography in terms of uh, the wheel of life, something that was there in late Indian Buddhism that the the Tibetans picked up on and used the iconography to teach dependent origination. So dependent origination is the crux of how we get into the problem that we have, how we get into the mass of suffering, the mass of dukkha, that the Buddha describes and that we all well know in different ways in our day-to-day experience. This is the way, in fact, we pattern each moment. Each sangsaric moment with its feeling tone of dukkha is patterned by us in this particular way. And I'll go through the links with you. However, when we see, for example, the Wheel of Life, the way it's laid out in the iconography, we find at the very centre of this representations of a cock, a pig and a snake. Uh, These represent greed, aversion and delusion. The pig represents delusion, out of which, from the mouth of the pig, come the cock and the snake, which represent, of course, greed and aversion in this instance. So at the very centre of the wheel, driving it, is this greed, aversion and delusion, or greed, hatred and delusion, if you prefer that, which is more standard translation. 
So at the very centre of it, driving the whole thing, is that. Well, as you can immediately see, well, of course, one of the things we're involved in developing this week is the opposites. That's what the Buddhist path is about. It's the development of the opposites, of the generation of generosity, the generation of kindness and compassion, the practices that you're engaged in, and the generation of insight. And actually, all three come about just in the varying approaches that the practices can take. You know, be it calm, be it vipassana, you know, insight, or be it metta and karuna, be it you know, compassion and kindness. They all give rise to the generation of the three antidotes, you know, the three antidotes to that which is driving our wanderings, as they put it, through samsara. You know, we have a lot of wandering to do, uh, and that is what is occurring. Now, one of the things you might have noticed, you might have picked up on, but it's very, you know, quite difficult sometimes just hearing things for the first time, but there is two kind of formulas that the Buddha is using for dependent origination. The first is what I call the generalised formula, which applies to everything. Um, and in a sense, this is the good news um, in terms of the Buddhist path to awakening. The generalised formula is this. This happens, that happens. Or this, this is actually the way it's put in the Pali. That ceases to happen, that ceases to happen. So this is a kind of generalised causal formula that, you know, this, you know, whatever is my right hand representing, that only comes to being when this happens. If this ceases to happen, that goes out of being. Now, I don't know whether you're picking up on it, but of course what all of this stuff on dependent origination is, is an extrapolation, a development, a big description of the content of the second of the ennobling truths. It's the content of, well, there is dukkha, and there's dukkha samudya. There is a cause to dukkha. And there can be a a cessation to it as well, which is the niroda part of it. So what dependent origination is doing is looking very, very deeply at the causal structure of how we get ourselves in the mess that we do, how this mess comes about. In one very, very famous text, the Buddha says, who's going to untangle the tangle? (laughs) Well, only you are going to untangle the tangle. That's where it's placed. And the part of that untangling of the tangle is the understanding of how we generate the problems that we find ourselves in, how we can come to cessation. Probably the most unemphasized, underemphasized aspect I find of a lot of teaching in the West. We're not actually taught that niroda is actually possible for us in many ways. You know, kind of as, oh yes, I'm practicing Buddhism, but oh, niroda, you know. <laughs> cessation, you know, where it all might stop. Uh, isn't often considered by many people to be a real possibility. I think if one understands the teaching of dependent origination, you really begin to understand, even if it's difficult, and we're not saying it is easy by any means, that niroda is always possible. It is always possible. It's possible for everyone with the right effort. Going back to the Eightfold Path, remember? Right effort, getting the effort balanced. Not too much, but just the right effort, the right application here. Okay, let me take you through 
Actually, no, I won't take you through the linkages yet. I'll take you through into the Six Realm. That's a lovely place to be in the Six Realms. You know this part, the Six Realms? Yeah, with the Deva Realms and the Praetor Realms and the Asura Realms. Uh, all these realms. You must have come across this teaching before. Well, the Deva Realms are wonderful. The Deva Realms are considered to be the pinnacle of Sangsara. But, of course, you can't get liberation from the Deva Realm, which is basically can translate as God Realm with a small g. You can't get liberation from the God Realm because you're so apathetic because you think you've got everything. You, know, you won't do anything. Uh, so it's like, you know, once you've reached the top, the only way is down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and particularly if you haven't, when your little merit stash that got you there has run out. <laughs> you know, it's like kind of, there's no cash in the bank any longer. <laughs> it's always on the way down. And interesting, the Tibetans have a wonderfully uh, little funny phrase in this. It said, when those people, um, when these beings are about to you know, die and pass out of the Deva realm and move obviously into one of the lower realms... Then they start to smell, and nobody will talk to them. <laughs> I think it's a wonderful metaphor what goes on in social life, isn't it? Yeah. So anyway, the Deva realm, the only way down, the only way from the Deva realm is down. Then we have usually it depends. It depends on the iconography. Sometimes it's uh, depicted on the right, and sometimes it's depicted on the left. So you know, don't get tied to any particular representation. Mostly, though, it's depicted on the right, and this is the realm of the Asuras. Um, there's not really a good translation for this. Um, I mean, jealous gods is one way of looking at it. Um, sometimes they're called titans. I don't know why. I never quite figured that one out. Um, but they're kind of one people where they're individuals, beings, if you like, and want to get to the place where the devas are. And again, in the iconography, it's a nice piece of iconography because there is the wish-fulfilling tree which grows in the realm of the Asuras but has all of its fruits in the realm of the gods in the realm of the devas. And the word asura actually says quite a lot. It's quite a nice word in Sanskrit because it's a contraction. It's a contraction of asurya. Surya is the sun. Asurya literally means the sun doesn't shine on them. They live in darkness all the time. So these are the people the sun doesn't shine on. They work damned hard to get to the top, but they never get to the top because all of the fruits go to the gods here in this instance. I'll leave the human realm to one side for a minute and just pass on to the, realm, the other realms. Then we have the Praetor realm, which is a realm, or the Petar realm as it uh, is in Pali. The Petar realm, which is a realm which represents uh, endless desire and the endlessness of desire that can never be satiated. There is no terminal point to desire, and I'll say a little bit more about this later. And the iconography for these figures uh, is very interesting, again, because they have descriptions. There's, a pet, there's something called the Petavatu, which is actually a small text in, in the canon. And they have descriptions of these beings, because they have little pinhole mouths, little scrawny necks, great big fat stomachs, and endless desire in terms of food for food and drink. And they can never satisfy it, because they can never get enough in <laughs> to satisfy their desires. Then there's the animal realm, which is, out of all this kind of cosmology here, is the only one we're going to recognise, really, directly. Um, and it's perceived in ancient Buddhism to be the realm of you know, persecution, um, surrender to blind instincts, 
you know, the instinct for eating and procreation and all the kinds of things that animals are involved in. I mean, it's not tremendously advanced psychology about understanding animals in this ancient world. But that's the way they describe. But it is tremendous persecution. You've only got to think about it. There are millions of animals that die each day you know, to end up on somebody's plate, let alone animals killing animals that are going on. So it's a realm of tremendous suffering in many ways, the animal realm, from this ancient perspective. Then there is a hell realm right at the bottom. Uh, and the hell realm is presided over by Yama, who's the god of death. And those who are reborn in the hell realm um, have a mirror held up to them by Yama, who's the god of death. Yama doesn't judge anybody. He just holds up a mirror. You enact your own judgment on yourself by what you see in the mirror in the hell realm. <laughs> so you judge yourself in this instance. Um, and I think we know that one in many ways because that's the realm of the way we torture ourselves and brutalise ourselves and this endless self-criticism that we can go on into and the depressions and all of that to result out of it. Then we have, of course, uh, the human realm. And this is the realm of the greatest possibility for awakening. It's not the top of Sangsara at all. It's the one which is considered to be traditionally the most fortunate rebirth. And the moral of that story being, you know, use it while you've got it. Make the best of your possibilities. Make the best of this human embodiment that you possibly can um, in your day-to-day lives. It's the possibility of the development of what we're engaged in, partly over this you know, three-week thing, of the development of compassion, the development of kindness, the possibility of the development of insight that can all take place in this particular realm. Not the actuality, hear me say, but the possibility that we have. They're divided up, these six realms, into three fortunate rebirths, which are the three uh, at the top, which is the Deva, of the human, and the Asura realm, and three unfortunate rebirths. You just really don't want to go there. That's the whole point about it at the bottom. Now, when I first heard this way, way back, when I first started being involved in Buddhism in very early 1970s, um, the first thing that struck me was these are wonderful characterizations of people's personalities. You know, the person driven by endless desire that can never be satisfied. The person who thinks they've got everything because they're at the top. Uh, those who are driven by blind instinct and you know, just, just surrender that kind of blindness of the instincts and that, you know, for sexuality and, uh, and you know, feeding and eating and excreting and all the stuff that goes on in ordinary, you know, ordinary animalistic existence. Hell realms, people who endlessly, endlessly torture themselves with you know, self-doubt and all this sort of stuff. Um, what else have we got? The Asuras, those that want to get to the top, striving to get... And those who think they've got everything, you know, think they've got the greatest lives possible until something happens to them. And I said to the, te- I said to the teacher, I was remember this very vividly, I said to the teacher at a particular time, is that the way it is? Are these kind of personality types? Because I know people like that. <laughs> I actually said to him, I know people like that. And uh, he said, uh, with a look of disgust on his face, he said, no, that's a picture of your mind on one day. <laughs> because that is what is going on. In other words, we're moving. And, and actually, there was a profound teaching that came out of this, which is one I often share. I've done it so many times in Guy's house. But there's a very profound teaching comes out of this, because he then posed the question. He said, how often are you human in a day? 
how many times you're just driven by blind instincts, torturing yourself, complacency because you think you've got it all, striving to get to the top, you know, blind desire, and so on and so forth. How often do you manifest the possibility for the development of insight or wisdom, if you want to use that, and compassion in your day? Yeah, that becomes, in a sense, the question. Yeah. Now, what we're going, what's happening, of course, in this creation, this patterning of samsara, which is being driven by greed, aversion, and delusion, is we're spinning round and round in those cycles each day. Some days, possibly, we'll inhabit one particular realm for a whole day. You know, most days, we'll be you know, popping into a number and paying a visit for a little while into the varying realms. But as a piece of very basic psychology, it's saying, of course, that we don't maximise our potential for what it really means to be in this human embodiment. And this is without any idea that there is a, you know, the traditional ideas of rebirth and that. We don't even have to place that in the equation at this stage. But how much are you realising the potential that you have to live to the maximum of your possibilities in this life, to maximise the possibilities for the development of compassion or kindness, quietness, calm, equanimity in this life. Um, and we don't intentionally do this a lot of the time, but most of us screw it up at uh, some point in the day. We might even go out with the best of intentions and end up, you know, by the time you get to work, having it all gone by the time you get there. You know, so we don't actually go out with bad intentions, but they develop over time simply because we're so habitually conditioned um, to end up in the same place. Now, what the 12 links of dependent origination give us a picture of is how that conditioning takes place. What is going on in that conditioning? Now, the whole thing, in a sense, starts with what is known in Pali, and I'll just use the Pali for this, which is known as a vidya. Avidya. Avidya is, of course, usually translated as ignorance, which is a perfectly okay translation, but it really doesn't, again, capture what's essential to this particular word, unless we hear it in its real etymological sense, even in English, because ignorance in English really means to ignore, to overlook, you know, to not pay attention to. And in a sense, that really is what the content of this type of ignorance that we're talking about. This is not deprivation of knowledge, and I want to make that really clear. Um, I often joke about this and saying, you know, you know if, if it was simply deprivation of knowledge, um, then actually most of us wouldn't have a problem, because we've probably read enough books and heard enough teachings um, to have reached awakening if it was simply a matter of knowledge. You know, we'd have reached enlightenment, if you want to use it in that way. Uh, we surround ourselves with books, don't we, often, uh, and think by the very process of osmosis that suddenly it's going to change, <laughs> changes, uh, and that we're going to suddenly become awakened from that. Um, it's not going to happen, because there's something far more. And in a sense, this goes back to the problem the Buddha has with Ananda. Ananda is saying, look, I understand this. And the Buddha is really saying, yeah, you only understand it intellectually. You don't really understand it with the profundity, with this embodied sense of knowledge, which is really required for that change to take place. This is a knowledge you have to feel, if you like, in your guts, not just in your head. It has to permeate the whole 
way that you comport yourself in the world uh, and understand the world and the way the sangsaric world comes about. So vidya is, in a sense, also not just not knowing, but really at the crux of it is not wanting to know. Because it's actually profoundly painful, much of the time, to know the way things really are. Um, This actual word, of course, the opposite of it, is vidya, which is knowledge, which is really knowing. We've just got to get rid of the A somehow, um, because it's avidya, which is not knowing here. But this profundity of not knowing is also being trapped in a mind frame which, in a sense, thinks it knows, but also does not want to drop that frame you know, to really see how things are. So what I want to convey to you, that this whole idea of things arising out of ignorance is not just a passive state that you're in. You know, ignorance isn't passive, it's actually an active condition. That we're, we're actively ignorant. We're actively not wanting to know a lot of the time. And let's just take one really profound truth out of the whole Buddhism, one I often speak about in Gaia House. I run whole courses on it sometimes, you know, whole retreats on it, which is impermanence. You know? Yeah, it's really easy to understand, isn't it? Impermanence. Everything is impermanent. All things are changing. You know? um, everything dies. Everything passes away. You know? But do we really own up to that? Because yeah, I always tend to think there's a little voice, perhaps in most people's head, going, oh, yeah, everybody dies, not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm somehow going to go on, yeah, one of the immortals. But it's that, <laughs> it's that sort of, that's embedded, that, that's, that not really wanting to take on, to the, on the profundity of the teaching on change and living in accordance with it. If this was really, really the case, and I really do want to emphasise this to you, if this was really the case that we understood impermanence, let's just take something really facile, something really banal in our ordinary lives, the way we get upset when we lose something, or the way we get upset when something breaks or the car doesn't start, and we get really annoyed. I have visions of this British comedy program, Basil Forty, you know, probably some of you see, beating the car because it won't go, <laughs> hitting it with a stick. <laughs> and I have visions of that, you know, because that really, in a sense, although it's a very jokey representation of it, in a sense is ours. We rail against impermanence. We rail against it, that things don't remain the same, you know, that they are changing, that they don't work, they break, they get lost, they get stolen. You know, and that is not even talking about the tragedies of life. You know, that's just thinking about the ordinary things we encounter day to day. And we turn that sense of impermanence. This is why impermanence is dukkha. This is why it is dukkha. Because we keep on bringing in the same mindset, actually expecting and wanting there to be permanence. But everything that's being, you know, the whole world is telling us in some way that it's impermanent. But we're not listening and we're not looking. We're not seeing that that is the case. Because otherwise these kind of minor dukkhas that we create for ourselves, you know, the minor distress that we all get ourselves into about these quite simple things that happen in ordinary life would not occur if we really, really understood that. 
That is generally considered to be the fount of the problem. Um, also, this is, I mean, the ignorance itself isn't simple because it's, it's composite. You know, Buddhists like lists, and you've heard me say this before. It's composite, it's composed out of something which is called asavas, of which there's no real good translation of this. But there are things like, for example, karmasava, which is this tendency to want to move towards sensuality, to, to nice things, and all the sensual delights that we have. And sensuality itself isn't a problem, it's the attachment to it that becomes a problem the craving for it, the drivenness that we have you know, for, the, for the chocolate bar or for the drink or you know, sexuality or whatever. I mean, kamma, this is the word that's used. I mean, you know, know this text, the Kama Sutra. You know, the Kama Sutra was exactly about that. It was about sensuality and pleasure. It was actually a cookbook, basically, for the way that the rich Brahmin about town could take their pleasures without getting defiled, um, losing caste or anything like this. Now, it's the same word that's being used in Buddhism, kamma, which is actually, as I say, it's sensuality. So kamasava is there. I'll give you a tentative translation of this word, asava, in a minute. Then we have the tendency towards wanting to be all the time. They call this bhavasava, yeah, the, the tendency to want to be around, you know, to continue ourselves in some way to extend ourselves so that we're remembered you know, in some kind of way. This can be from the, for the, from the craving for an immortal soul um, right down to getting yourself recorded on your tombstone you know, in some way. The tendency to want to continue seeing yourself through your children, through your good works, any, anything where you want to be, in a sense, still around. You know, from the most metaphysical of the ideas, which is the idea of something continuing on forever, down to just leaving a monument to yourself in the world in some way. And that's bhavasava. There's a vijasava as well, which is the ignorance which I've spoken about. And then there's finally, there's a nice little one that's added in, which is usually translated as ditasava, or the actual Pali is ditasava. And it's usually translated as um, the tendency to views... Uh, or, perhaps is a better word, opinions about things. And that's why it's part of ignorance. Um, because opinions are not knowledge. They're not actually understanding the way things are. And this word asava, well, it gets many, many translations in the um, you know, English translations of this word, none of which are really effective. Um, one is outflows, and you'll hear in a minute why I think that captures a little bit of it. Uh, another one is cankers. A translator friend of mine actually said the only thing he knew that had cankers was dog's ears and roses, <laughs> um, which is not a terribly good one. Defilements is another uh, translation of it. But what it actually means, and you can see why the translators don't use this, is effluent, crap. And it's what's being poured out onto the world. So actually, we are pouring out onto the world our cravings for sensual things, our desire to be, our ignorance, and our opinions about the way things are. And they're flowing out of us. You know, there's this vision I have. It's not a very delightful vision of incontinence. <laughs> We all have incontinence with these things. Yeah. Is, is there a, um, 
talking about, is there a differential here between what is biologically driven and what is volition? Yeah, there is. Yeah, I mean, it's not made explicitly in the early texts um, because basically they're dealing with the psychology of it. Uh, but even sometimes basic drives will get taken up into our makeup and psychologized in some way so that it become very separate. You know, so let me give, give you an example. I mean, obviously, most of us have the biological necessity and the drive to eat for food. However, if that was the case, you know, we'd be tucking into, I don't know, something like the lions are on the Serengeti. But we don't, do we? We have an aesthetic of food, the way it's presented, the way it looks, the way it's put together. You know, it's very different from just the biological drive for food. We like to be pampered and have it nice. Some of these really austere monks, when they go on their pindapart, you know, they get their dessert and they get their uh, main course and then they go put a spoon and go like this. Mix it all up together you know, to try and overcome that either idea of the craving for you know, the sensuality of food. You know, I think it's a bit extreme, personally, but, but that's often what goes on. Um, so I, in much of the cases, even the biological drives have been superseded in some senses by the psychology of them, although they still might, the actual basic drive still might underlie it. No, that's to do with that's to do with craving. That's another list. <laughs> we'll get to that one later. So you said that the asavas were at the root of it, or created ignorance. But you also you're saying that avijja is one of the others. Yeah, it is. How do you square that circle? Well, it's it's actually what we're saying is that that ignorance isn't simply just ignorance. Right. Ignorance is vijasava and the other three. You know, in other words, it's composite. There's a you know, composite of all those three factors. So what we're actually doing is we are pouring this stuff out onto the world. No wonder it's sangsara. Yeah, no wonder it's you know, it's dukkha. Yeah. And no wonder we are suffering in the ways that we do, both physically sometimes and well, particularly mentally in this way. In fact, the a synonym in Pali for achieving awakening is the cessation of the asavas. Actually, the actual cutting off of the asavas, called kinasava, to cease the asavas, to cease pouring them out. And that has another word that goes with it, which is usually translated as cessation, niroda. And actually what the word really means in Pali is to stop leaking. (laughs) It's to stop leaking these things onto the world. Uh, now, the Buddha deliberately used agricultural metaphors, and this was from a paddy field society. And what you did is you shored up your paddy field to stop it leaking water. You know, and that's what you're doing. You're stopping leaking those things out on the world and hopefully eradicating them at the same time as well. Anyway, this is getting into a long story, so I want to kind of shorten it a little bit. Um, the next of the links after that is one that I mentioned in relation to the Kundas, in relation to the personality aggregates that we talk about in terms of not-self, and that is Sankaras, uh, volitional formations, basically, um, the ways that we have entrenched habits, both good and bad, often more weighted on the unwholesome aspect as opposed to the good aspect. 
But these are the volitional formations, and you can see their direct linkage is arising out of, and say is dependent on ignorance, arises formations. So just think about this in terms of your ordinary life. If we are not wanting to know about a lot of things, we form our habits out of that not wanting to know, you know our approaches to the world. And that can be physical and mental as well. In each case. So we are literally, I mean, without going into too much detail, there's this idea of both formed and forming within this. This is something we're actively doing at this moment, and it's directly related to our not wanting to know a lot of the time. So we're actively forming particular volitions. Um, some habits move in, um, and they don't leave us. Other habits are modified, changed, because nothing is remaining the same here. Um, they have reality tests and all sorts of things go on. But out of that, well, it says dependent on volitional formations, there is the arising of consciousness. Now, if you remember what I was saying in the previous talk I gave about not-self, consciousness has to have an object. Its immediate object are these habit patterns that we have. That's what we know. That's at the foremost of what is driving us. And this is, in other words, patterning things at this early stage. That we're being patterned by our habits and our consciousness is being modified or formed through our habits. And so if our habits are unwholesome, then the quality of consciousness is unwholesome. If our habits are wholesome, then the quality of consciousness is wholesome. So immediately... The first thing that we are aware of, in fact, in most situations, in most ordinary minute-to-minute -minute situations, what we are normally aware of is not possibility, but reflex habits that we fall back on. Yeah. That's what we know. This is, in a sense, and I don't want to depress anybody at this stage, this is why it's difficult. Yeah. Yeah, this is why this whole process is difficult. This is the tangle that the Buddha speaks about that we're trying to untangle. Yeah. Because that tangle of habits and consciousness is the one that is most proximate, is m the thing that we realise mostly in our minute-to-minute, day-by-day operations, just as we move through life. Yeah. We're, consciousness, we're conscious of doing things in a particular way. And these are so well-patterned, as you'll hear in a minute. Because out of that arises what's called Nama Rupa in Pali. Uh, Nama Rupa is not, well, it's usually translated as mind and body, but it really ought to be the patterning of mind and body, the blueprinting of mind and body. So in other words, through ignorance, our habit formations and the form of consciousness we have, we pattern our mind and bodies in a certain way so that by the time we get through all the other 12 links and we get birth, you know, which is how we find ourselves actually in the moment. It's not just about being born. It's a metaphor for how we find ourselves in the moment. When we move into that next moment, our minds and bodies are already patterned. Yeah. And if we continue to do that for a lifetime, then we end up with illnesses. We end up with diseases. We end up with mental problems. All the kinds of things that we see proliferating in our societies. And that's simply through habituation, through conditioning. Because if we're conditioned to think in certain ways, and that's what we bring into the present moment, then it's like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
what's going to happen. You know, not absolutely, because there obviously has got to be room for change, otherwise what we're engaged in here wouldn't be possible. So out of this patterning of mind and body, there's a determination of the six senses. You know, five normal senses that we speak of, plus our mental sensing. Now, you know, it's, very, you know, it's quite different often the way we think about it in the West because there is not only the five sense organs, there is the mental sensing. Uh, these are called sense spheres, they're called salayatana, uh, which is actually the sense spheres. You know, in other words, our, our audible sphere is the sphere of hearing, um, our visual sphere, almost like worlds that we inhabit. Um, sometimes they cross over in things like synesthesia, for example. A wonderful story of, of one of the um, composers, Messiaen, Olivier Messiaen, uh, who's sin- do you know this word synesthesia? Uh, where you mix up the senses. So often, for example, you hear sound and colour is related to it. And this particular person who was studying with Messiaen, Messiaen um, was playing something and said, is that okay? And apparently Messiaen says, no, a little bit greeny-blue, please. <laughs> But these are spheres that can become mixed as well. That's all I'm trying to indicate by them, because they become mixed in the mind. And that's the mental sense sphere here. So we have these six sense spheres. Because we have the six sense spheres, then what do we do? We have pasa, which is contact. We're contacting things yeah, immediately. I mean, my, I can't, you know, let's close my eyes. My eyes are contacting things all the time. And even when I close my eyes, there's often visual sensations still going on. Yeah, audible sensations. Yeah, are contacting, impinging on my ear, impacting on them, um, and all the other senses as well. Um, and even if you go into a sensory deprivation chamber, uh, you're still going to have mental stuff going on. Yeah, so our minds are contacting things continuously. And in a sense, as you can see, there's a kind of chain of dependencies that's going on here that gives rise to the next really, really important one, which is from the arising, from... Uh, contact, we get the arising of feeling. Now, I mentioned to you this already in one of the talks, I can't remember which one, but there are three types of feeling that we have. Like, or pleasant, dislike, or unpleasant, and couldn't care less, which is kind of neutral, something you don't even notice. You know, so pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Um, but this is more an apathetic neutrality rather than an actual kind of neutrality of equanimity, for example. Um, so immediately feelings are there upon contacting anything. You, know, you hear a sound, you immediately detect it. You don't have much choice about this at all. You immediately pick it up as being an unpleasant sound. You know, if it's, a, I don't know, a, one of these um, fire alarms going off or something, you would hear that probably as quite an unpleasant sound. And most of us wouldn't have any choice in it. Here, um, we hear some pleasing sounds of music, perhaps, and we hear that as pleasant. You know, so what do we do? In one case, we move towards it. So what is pleasant, we move towards. What is unpleasant, we move away from. You know, so there's this automatic movement, and actually, that's the majority of our lives, isn't it? You know, moving towards that which is pleasant. You know? And this is the important part about our relations with people. In compassion, you can move towards even the unpleasant person. Without it, we're simply moved, pushed and pulled in these different directions. Then, of course, there is the neutral category, um, which, of course, 
well, we, a lot of the time we don't even see it. We don't even perceive it. Until perhaps it shifts, because all of these are impermanent. Yeah, the pleasant moves to the unpleasant, the neutral moves to either the pleasant or the unpleasant, yeah, and so on and so forth, and just mixing up. But our out of this, as I was trying to say, I think, the other day, out of this arises immediately craving. Yeah? Tanha is the word, or Trishna as it is in Sanskrit. This word is a really, really important word because it means the unquenchable thirst. By its very nature, it cannot be quenched. Yeah. And that actually is applied to both the pleasant and the unpleasant. Because a lot of life, and I can't remember I said this, I probably did, is actually spent craving to avoid certain things happening to us. Yeah. Even Freud have that, has that in his psychology. You know, the pleasure principle. Actually, the pleasure principle has very little to do with pleasure, and it's mostly about the avoidance of things you don't want, like pain in it. You know, so there's that kind of movement going on within it. However, tanha, and this is the list that you were saying, Jiva, tanha isn't singular. It has three forms. Yeah, it has kamatanha, yeah, which is the craving for sensual things. Yeah, that includes all of the goodies of the world that we might want. And that can go on endlessly. That's the stuff of the West, isn't it? The material condition of the West. Yeah? And it's the mythology of the West. You know? It's the, if I had this particular thing that I really want, then I would be happy. And I've only got to get that and I would be happy, wouldn't I? That's the mythology of it all. Yeah? And you, you know, create your own little sentence for it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But it's that kind of thing, isn't it? You know, the craving for that thing. And you say to yourself, well, if only I won the lottery, I would be happy. You know, I can't be happy now because I haven't won the lottery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if only I had a new house or only if I was with this particular person because you know, that goes into human relationships goes in this basket as well. Um, the craving to want something that's going to make me happy. If only I was with that person, I would be happy. And all this kind of mythology that's going on, that's all about Kamatanha, <laughs> generally. You know, so it's from the stuff from material objects and the materialism of our society and all the things that are involved, even to viewing a person as a sensual object that would satisfy my desires. Because an alternative translation instead of craving is desire here. Yeah. So, May I? Yeah, sure. It sounds like the, the motor in this little Toyota is, <laughs> is the Sankara. Yeah, Sankara is the That's the real guts of it, yeah. because that's going to drive everything else that... It is, but because the sankharas are dependent on ignorance and the content of ignorance, yeah, yeah, as well. So it's that it's that those two together as the complex, which are actually Mm. the nub of the problem in many ways in this way that we pattern our lives, and they all end up. In other words, it's a kind of like feed line that passes through all of them until we end up being in this craving condition. Um, one of these elements of craving, as I'm saying, is, is sensual craving. Based on habit, based on sankharas, based on what we've craved before. And, and based on the asavas. Based on the asavas. Yes. And again, it's not sequential. It's not one after the other. No, no, no. It's just like, it's like a heap. Yeah, it is. Or a ball of wool. Well, actually, I didn't go into it, but the etymology of the word Paticca Samapada um, is actually things which are leaning against each other. Um, just as you would you know, stack up hay if you've been gathering hay and you've got it in bundles and you'd stack them up so that they all supported each other. 
that's the image that's being used, that's the image that's actually encapsulated in the word Paticca Samapada, you know, of dependency. Not causation as such, although it's often translated as that way, but a relationship of dependency. For this one to stay up, it's got to have this other one to lean against. Yeah, and there could be any number of sheaves all stacked up in that way. Is that when you see sometimes see it written codependency? Yes, it is. Yeah, co- codependent origination is probably a better translation, although it's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? There's trouble with a lot of these words when you try to present an accurate translation, they end up as being quite big mouthfuls. Yeah. Um, dependent origination. I mean, the other way that I suggested, which really captures the flavour of it, but without um, necessarily the accuracy of dependent origination as a translation, is situational patterning. Because it's the way each situation that we find ourselves in is invariably patterned with a certain texture. And that texture is the 12 links that patterns things. Or heaped up, stacked up together, all supporting each other. So there's Kamasavan. Where is time going rather quickly? (laughs) (laughs) You've got another week and a half. (laughs) There's Kamasava, and then there is, of course, there is Bhavasava, which is, uh, sorry, Bhavatana, which is um, there, as we've seen in the Asavas, just as Kamasava is as well. Bhava Tanha is the craving to be. And uh, that you know, can be, as I say, and I won't go into it again, but it can be from the idea that I want to go on forever. I can't think of anything worse. Can you? <laughs> <laughs> I want to be me forever. <laughs> you know, just going on. Um, there would be that. And then there would be, for example, um, the craving to continue yourself, as I suggested, through children, through works, through all sorts of things, the way that we can do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you can think of your own examples in this instance. And that's, in a sense, us perhaps having a better day, you know, the craving to want to be. Um, then, of course, there's the bad news, the vibhavatana, which is the craving not to be at all. Um, and in a sense, these represent two polarities which we wax and wane between. Um, vibhavatana really is, well, in its most serious form, of course, it's things like suicidal tendencies. To think that you can get rid of the problem of life by killing yourself. And in a certain sense, if you take out traditional ideas of rebirth, then perhaps you could. But, of course, traditional Buddhism has rebirth at its very centre. And what what is being said there is, of course, you don't exit the problem. Or whatever remains doesn't exit the problem. You know, the problem comes back. And that problem is the problem of, of life and dukkha and everything that goes with it. So we're oscillating often between these. Now, craving for sensual things can be, um, and I would suggest this very strongly, um, can be the craving for the things which we are addicted to in life. And this can be the strong addictions, like the drink and the drugs and the cigarettes and all that stuff. Um, but of course, that might be linked with, for example, vibhavatana. You know, it might be linked for actually drinking too much to to cease being for a period of time. Yeah. So it's kind of they're linked together; they're not mutually exclusive. 
You, know, you don't have one and then the other. They're all manifestations of each other, and I can only give you that very quickly this evening. But, of course, then craving itself um, manifests in attachment, upadana. Yeah, and I think I said something about this to you, about this idea of fueling a material process, keeping the fires burning. Actually, what you're doing is stoking up the fires of greed, aversion, and delusion, actually through attachment. Yeah, that is why we're, what we're doing. We're continuously feeding that, keeping the fires burning. Um, I think I gave you the example, didn't I, of the monkey trap, of getting tra- trapping the monkey? Well, there's another version that's used in the text of trapping monkeys as well, other than the burying the fruit and getting stuck in that. And this is the idea of putting some tar down, which they actually do, used to do in ancient... They put tar down in the forest, and what happens is the monkey comes along and goes like that with its foot. So in order to extricate this foot, now what it does is it just puts in its other foot to try and pull that foot out. Now it's got two stuck feet. Then it puts in a paw or whatever it is and tries to pull that out, and then it does another one and even gets its head stuck, eventually. You know, trying to pull itself out. Now, what's suggested in the text is what the monkey's doing wrong is it's not reaching out to pull itself out by something external. You know, in other words, the dharma. So actually, you know, instead of grasping after or trying to extricate oneself in this way, um, you should be actually looking to the dharma and everything's implied in that as a means of extricating yourself from your stuckness. Because that is what attachment is. It's stuckness. you're entrapped Um, and I think the monkey trap actually works well in terms of the one where you have the piece of fruit buried here is you're actually entrapped often by the things we have we're entrapped often by the relationships that we have we find ourselves stuck um, in situations we don't want to be in because we can't let go don't want to let go Um, we don't extricate ourselves because of this fear of letting go. Yeah, of letting go. I mean, often people I've seen many, many times, people are surrounded by stuff they don't actually like, but they won't give it away. <laughs> yeah, they're entrapped by it, in other words. And it's a bit like kind of creating the cage and steering, staring occasionally through the bars of the cage and perceiving there's freedom out there. And that, in a sense, is what's happening in this stuckness, which I'm really calling attachment. Yeah. Um, the actual word upadana also has the a connotation of a clenched fist, a fist holding onto something and not letting it go, refusing to let it go. That moves on then into bala, which, in a sense, is where we find ourselves um, manipulating our situation in order to to get to a certain point. It's usually translated as becoming. We find ourselves in a process of becoming. You know, and, and that often is moving towards something that's perceived to be the thing that we want, the place we want to be, the state of being that we require at that moment. And it's a, in a sense, it's, it's the massaging of any situation to get what we want. Hasn't that happened earlier, though? No, it's really feeding through into this. Doesn't that happen based on Sankara's to Vedana feeling? But that's why they're not separate. That's why they're all interrelated. That's why they're the sheaves again, being stacked together. Because it's not isolated at this moment. It's being fed by everything else. In a way, Bawa is the manifestation of all that's preceded it. 
that's got to that point. What, what about then craving and clinging? Have mm. we already identified what it is we want at that point? No, because some of those cravings and clingings can be blind. We haven't, I, you know, for example, um, we, let's take a very good example in terms of craving. We often uh, find ourselves in modes of behaviour where, for example, we're, we're eating the chocolate bar, you know, you know, we're eating it before we've even realised that we had a craving for wanting it. You know, so it's compulsive behaviour. Free-floating, pre-existing... Um... Um, craving and clinging, is that right? And then you'll, you'll find the object that you want. And you'll find the object that you want. And for example, that, that for example when, when perhaps, and I'm only suggesting this, when perhaps identification occurs that, oh, I like the chocolate bar, yeah. but I now eat it, I want another one. Yeah. Bar becomes the creation of how I get another bar, yeah. you know, or the other drink, or whatever the compulsion is that you want. The movement towards repetition. It's the movement towards some kind of repetition, that's right, yeah. It's the process of becoming, you know, in its most general, general sense of the word. So it can cover everything, from modes of being to objects of acquisition to compulsions, everything else. Now that gives rise to, or something arises in dependence on that, which is possibly the, the, the satiation of it by getting, you know, let's just take an example of getting something that we want, or not getting it. In other words, it's the situation we find ourselves in. That's called jati. That's actually tra- jati, which is birth. That's where we find ourselves. So out of this whole process that's gone on before, being compulsively driven in certain ways and patterning in our lives, we find ourselves in the moment, in a particular sense of satiation, on, yeah, it's the outcome, or non-satiation. But however... There is something else that arises out of that, dependent on that, which is jaramarana, which is um, usually translated as aging and death. In other words, what it's saying is, even when that has occurred, when I've got to that jati, when I've got to that point of conclusion, of got what I want, let's take an addiction, just because it's a very good and easy example to use. I've got through this whole process, being driven in a certain way by an addiction. I find myself in the point of having got it, satisfied my desire, and it arises again because, you know, for example, if it's drink, you sober up. If it's drugs, you require more to get to the same state. So in other words, it declines, it falls away. It doesn't remain the same. And then you're back into the process again. That is what is occurring. To undo it, you've got to somehow unlock what's going on there. Does it matter in the cycle where you do the unlocking? Traditionally it does, yes. I mean, traditionally the weakest link in the chain, if you want to see it as a chain, is that between feeling and craving. In other words, you identify the feeling that arises, and of course the feeling normally gives a rise immediately to the desire to avoid or the desire to um, satiate yourself or move towards something. So it's actually, if you like, experiencing the feeling and somehow not moving towards something or moving away from it. Because the other ones are so quick, it's automatic. Yeah, because they're very quick and very automatic. So even if you say that's the one that you can cut, and 
It's the only one really you can get an immediate insight because, and again this comes back to actually insight meditation, one of the things you do a lot in insight meditation, and the Goenka tradition is very, very strong on this, is actually spending a lot of time experiencing feelings. And the reason why identifying them, seeing them change, seeing what's going on, body scanning, all this stuff that goes on that they do in the Goenka Ubakin tradition, um, which is actually because that is the immediate road, if you like, into breaking the link between the craving you know, that is arising. And bear in mind, craving in the big sense of craving to avoid and craving to move towards here in this instance. That is what you're doing. That's the only one, really, that's m- immediately accessible to us. Because we all know that we have feelings. You know, or sensations, actually, is probably a better translation. We have these sensations, and we can identify them. But Mm-hmm. Craving to avoid. Yeah, craving to avoid. As I said, suggested earlier on, huge component of life is actually the craving to avoid things. Craving to avoid, yeah, to avoid the unpleasant. Okay. Yeah. I thought yeah. you meant craving to avoid the craving for the pleasant. No, no, no. Craving to avoid what is unpleasant. Now, now I can give you that example. Now, this is, works very much in what is going on in ordinary life. And I'll try and give you just a bigger picture to round us up. What is going on in ordinary life? Take what's, you know, the way that we divide up, um, say, acquaintances, people we know, into those we want to be with and those we want to avoid. <laughs> Classic human behaviour, isn't it? Yeah. Those you want to be with and those you want to avoid. Yeah. Now, what, of course, in a sense, I'm getting towards, and I'll kind of get it in the next talk that I give, is actually in that, if we introduce compassion and kindness, and along with equanimity which arises in relationship to this, and that's really what this practice is about, is creating the equalisation of all of those figures who you kind of bring to mind, call to mind, including yourself, then you're starting to work away and chip away at that immediate responsiveness. Here is the per- you know, as I suggested right at the very beginning of the retreat, it's about life, isn't it? All of this stuff is about ordinary life. That person who you normally find irritated and want to avoid, can you treat them with kindness? And what does that do about this automatic reflexive behaviour, this you know, knee-jerk reaction? Most of what we've got, that's encapsulated in the story of dependent origination and why it pans out in terms of the practices that we're doing is because most of it is simply reaction. That is all it is. That person you're confronted with and um, irritates you, what, what, what is it? It's irritating. Well, it's a reaction to the, way, the, the being of that other person, the way they are. Yeah. And it's overcoming that reactivity and how are you doing it by starting to try and engage in activity, not reactivity. Now, most of us think we're free, and we're not. Dependent origination actually paints a very bleak picture, not just simply for the sheer hell of it, but to show us that we can get out of it. By introducing the virtues, obviously insight's a very important one, but that's going to arise out of the development of love and kindness and compassion that we engage in, to start to unravel the process. 
Please, go ahead. Could you say something about the creature that holds the wheel? Yama, Yama, the god of death. It's Yama who's the god of death who holds the wheel. And all that's indicating is, you know, Sangsara is endlessly continuing because you know, there will be rebirth holding onto the wheel. Freedom doesn't exist within the wheel. And remember that the traditional goal of Buddhist activity, and I'll say something about this, the traditional goal of Buddhist practice is to bring about the cessation of the wheel of rebirth. You know, to, so you stop endlessly wandering in sangsara. I'm kind of giving you a very, very traditional viewpoint. Now, if you want a non-traditional viewpoint, much more an Abhidharma perspective, coming from a psychology basis, it's to stop being caught in endlessly repetitive patterns of behaviour. Stop finding yourself in similar places again and again and again. I used to joke about this and say, you know, what we find ourselves is you know, born again and again and again and again and again and again Buddhists. <laughs> because that's what's happening and we're doing that every moment. Um, in the Tibetan tradition, just to give you another slightly different perspective on this, to see what happened, you know, what's going on, they have this book that's usually translated as the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is an appalling way of translating it. But within that book is a story about you know, what happens in the stages between death and rebirth. And there's a period which they call Bardo in Tibetan, um, which you know, can last up to 49 days, according to the tradition. Um, now, this is a teaching both for life and for death. Now, I think its actually main purport is about life, because it actually gives you a little story. It says, when you go into this bardo, you have all these nice, peaceful, attractive things, and you have these rather frightening ones, uh, which are basically usually translated as peaceful and wrathful deities. Now, in the bardo, you have certain choices, which ones you move towards or which ones you move away from. And then there's a bright, shining light as well. And there's kind of all this stuff going on in it. And it's very, very heavily culturalised, this stuff in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. But let me just give you a picture. Peaceful deities, wrathful deities. And the wrathful deities are really wrathful. I mean, you know, come on, they've got skull cups full of blood and big rosaries of severed heads and all sorts of things in the iconography of this. And they've got these nice, peaceful, gentle figures. Uh, and it says, you know, you have to choose which one you move towards in the Barado state. I'm giving you a very kind of quick picture of this. Uh, but you have to choose which one you move towards. Which one do you move towards? Most people. Peaceful deities. Wrong choice. <laughs> you move to that which is difficult. <laughs> and that, it's a, wouldn't that choice be karmically determined? Uh, to a certain degree, but there, of course, you know, there is no, I mean, what's called vipaka karma, or you know, the outcome, um, karma with fruit, in other words, isn't simply deterministic. That is why the, with volition, you can change karma. Yeah? So in other words, although I might be experiencing this particular state, I still have choice within it. And that determines whether the next moment is going to be karmically wholesome or unwholesome out of what I do. So if I make the correct choices, then I move towards freedom. But of course, the picture that's being given here is a very psychological picture. Um, and the picture mainly is about this, and it's very simple. You've got choices in every moment. That's the bardo. Every moment you have choices. What do we choose? We choose the easy. We fall back on that which is known, that which is easy. 
Now, we're all lazy. Come on, let's face it. So the bardo is a, a, a description of our given state of mind isn't it? before we make the choice. Yeah. I mean, the actual word bardo simply means in Tibetan. It's a very simple Tibetan word. It just means in between. It means any in-between state. Now, that can be obviously in between birth and, you know, between death and rebirth. But it's very specifically, it's about any in-between state, because every moment has an in-between moving to the next moment. Now, it's obviously very short, very, you know, very quick. And it's a moment of choice. That's what's being indicated. Now, what we usually choose, given the linkage, is we fall back into the patterning of samsara. That most simple word samsara, which you've you know, been around Buddhist circles most of you for quite a long time, the word samsara means to go round in circles. That's the literal meaning of it. Yeah. So do they have a, a, li- a little bigger gap when they are dead? So if they hear the teachings then... Well, that's partly... Maybe yeah. they have a bigger chance. Well, that's the 49 days, and that's why you know, it's recited into the ear of the deceased person up until their cremation, and then it will continue to be recited after the cremation. Now, what it's saying, though, for us in our ordinary period is we have that moment of choice. Now, how are we going to get into that moment of choice? Well, the first way of getting into the moment of choice is to engage in cultivation practices, meditation practices, which slow things down to a degree. So when you get to the linkage in, you know, when there is feeling arising, that you can actually perhaps perceive craving arising rather than find yourself in craving behaviour. Then choice becomes possible, because you could feel the craving and not follow it. You might feel the craving and still follow it. And that's always the downside of it. But it's building in that moment of choice, that moment of volition into it. Let's get back to the real nitty-gritty stuff, when I'm confronted with that person, because it happens to all of us, doesn't it? When I'm confronted, that person that really makes me angry, can't get on with them at all. Do I fall back into my compulsive behaviour? Into, oh, I don't like this person, they make me feel this way, I get angry, I walk away, don't want to speak to them, or can I you know, bring compassion? Can I bring kindness into that relation? Because that then becomes a choice that we have. If I've watched the operation, for example, if I can watch the irritation arising and instead of engaging in irritated behaviour, replace it with compassionate behaviour, then I've cut the chain. Even if they smack you in the face. Even if they smack you in the face, yes. (laughs) A little bit more difficult. And even if you're faking it. Probably in the early days, yes, you know, it would be. Yes, you know, you're doing it through gritted teeth. That's it? right. At you're, least you're not being abusive. That's you're not doing. I mean, a lot of this is training yourself. It's training yourself behaviorally yeah. to a degree. Yeah. So, what happens if I can't get that automatic feeling? And you know, you're working very hard. You're trying to develop in these compassion practices. You're trying to develop in these kindness practices. Um, and sometimes you'll get the feeling, and a lot of the time you won't for it. You know? And particularly when you take it out from here. I think it's slightly easier in these isolated situations. You're mostly in silence, not, you know, I say easier, I didn't say easy. It'll be easy when the, when the other retreat ends. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, anybody else got problems? <laughs> but when you're actually thrown out into when you're actually thrown out into the world again, back in your work situations, your domestic situations, your home situations, you're going to be confronted by people who ordinarily you might find difficult. You know, you're difficult people that you're visualising in both your compassion practice and your kindness practice. You know, it might differ, but I don't know. But those are the people you're going to be confronted with. Now, I'm not saying because you've done a three-week retreat on meta and compassion that you're immediately going to be gushing with compassion. <laughs> you know, a font or a geezer of compassion <laughs> at this moment. So what do you do? You act compassionately, even if you don't feel it. You start to, you know, and, and perhaps some of what's gone on in the retreat starts to come together with the behaviour. Because the behaviour was what really is important, particularly in your relations with others. So it's compassionate behaviour, kind behaviour. That starts to behaviourally unravel that close connection between the immediate feeling and the immediacy of the craving, because there's no freedom in that. It's just reactivity. Surely, when you said if we're acting, people pick up. You know, people would almost prefer you to sincerely say what you feel rather than acting. Well, I don't mean acting. I mean, in a sense, there's nothing false about it. What you're trying to do is engage in virtuous behaviour. That is all. Um, This was brought strong, very strongly to me, quite a long time back. There was a particular Westerner who was railing against this Tibetan teacher and saying, you, know, you keep saying to me, you know, um, be compassionate, be compassionate. I don't feel compassionate. And the teacher said, I didn't say anything about feeling. I just said, behave compassionately. You know, and that's what you're talking about, just behaving in a certain way, behaving decently this moment in time. Feeling, you know, together with these practices that you're doing, the feeling and the behaviour will come together. One stimulates the other. You know, it's not working one way. You know, it's not simply the feeling working on the behaviour or the behaviour working on the feeling. The two go together in this instance. They support each other. They are dependent arisings. Mm-hmm. Again. <laughs> Gosh, this is turning into a marathon. <laughs> it's my own fault. <laughs> uh, it's not just feeling, though, is it? It's because I always think there's, there's some degree of insight helps here. Exactly. You know, when you, when you realise that the the person who gets up your nose is like you, you know, that you have the same stuff going on in a different mix. Yeah. But you're, you know, you're just as a pain in the arse to someone as he is. Yeah, you know, you're that's right. You're a pain in the arse to somebody else, aren't you? Yeah. Well, it's, this, you see, this is, this, is the, this is why compassion is so elemental in, in this instance. Actually getting into, well, looking at the other person. Why is that other person... Um, behaving in that way. Let's take somebody who's angry towards me. Most of it is there's actually nothing personal in it. You, know, you happen to be the object that's around. You know, so a lot of anger, there's nothing personal. <laughs> you know, I could be anybody you know, with the person getting angry in front of me. You know, it just so happens it, it might be the culmination of a day or a week or a month of, that's led up to this point and you're the object of attention. But there's nothing personal in it. So, in other words, how, where is that coming from? That's coming deeply, deeply from the other person's pain. Their pain of existence. 
the difficulty of being. Now, I'm sure we've all experienced this, haven't we, when we've got irritated and angry, even with loved ones. You know, when the kind of culmination of the various, often quite minor pains and distresses of ordinary life have come together to a moment and you just lose it at that moment. That's coming out of your pain, equally with the other person. When that happens, it's coming out of their pain. Now, this is not to excuse awful behaviour. It's not meant to be an excuse. It's meant to help us to empathise and to understand how it arises, why it is occurring. And as you absolutely rightly say, if others are doing that to me, or to us, then we're probably likely to be doing it to other people as well. Sometimes not even noticing through lack of awareness. So within um, compassion and kindness also, there is a guardian of awareness and that's, in a sense, why they, why they also become slightly insightful practices, because you're applying them in situations in a way to break that pattern of reactivity. <coughs> so, you know, hopefully I've started to make the link for you between seeing these dependent arising, in other words, beginning to have a bit of a glimpse into the problem and how that problem arises and the depth of the problem, and also how we can mitigate it, how we can move towards the breaking of compulsion, of compulsive behaviour, because that's what we're, we're doing. Um, I often say this, you know, from the Buddhist perspective, we're all compulsive neurotics. You know, we do the same thing and again and again and again, and other people do the same thing again and again to us. You know, so how do you break it? Well, this is one way of starting to break it. Introduce a little bit of love into dependent origination. <laughs> See what happens. Because you, know, you drive the wedge of love or compassion or kindness between the feeling and the craving, and you'll be surprised at what starts to occur. In other words, you drive it between the stimulus and the response. That's that. I think I've said enough for tonight. <laughs> I don't know. That's not to cease any questions. If anybody's got any questions that they wish to ask. Continue this discussion on the pub. This is the rebel. <laughs> Uh, no, actually, in in the in the bardo realm in general, when people don't get liberated in the bardo, what actually occurs is they move towards the peaceful. They move towards that which is easier, mm-hmm. that to which they're more attracted, rather than move towards that which represents the difficult. Yeah. Oh, right. but, but then the, is the white light. You, I didn't even... The white light ultimately is is that which you move towards, which again, is not just like a white light; it's a blinding light. You know, that's the way it's described in the text. You know, and again, it's not something you can easily look at and, and easily move towards. And, but all of this language really is just trying to show us that, that our movement primarily is always towards that which is easy. And as we know, I mean, you, you will know, having done you know, 
getting on for two weeks of a retreat now, you know, moving towards anyway, two weeks of retreat. You know, it's actually the difficult, sometimes working through the difficult, which actually brings us into uh, a space of freedom. You know, the acknowledgement of the stuff that we all carry around with us and, and glimpse from time to time. You know, here in retreat, you get a chance to glimpse it, to love it, to befriend it, you know, to really, really deeply acknowledge what is there. And that is the movement towards the difficult. You know, it's easy to fall into cosy habits here. That's actually not what retreat's about. I always think these people first come on retreat and they think they're going to go to a nice, quiet place and they're going to feel all blissed out for whatever it is. Yeah. Kind of trace descriptions act to somewhere <laughs> gone wrong here. <laughs> yeah. You know, that actually it ought to come with it, this is going to be difficult. And because I'm not saying it's always difficult, but if there isn't difficulty involved, somehow it's not working. You know, it's like the, it's like that bit of grit that's in the oyster that creates the pearl. It's that that movement around that particular those difficulties that you have and the ways that you explore them and acknowledge them, out of which is created something beautiful that comes out of it. And those are the choices we have. We have the moment to moment. So actually, every moment that you live, every moment, which is unrepeatable, completely unique and unrepeatable, um, is a moment of opportunity. And that's the kind of really positive side of the teaching. It's like, okay, I've blown it this moment, so come on, what about the next one? Or the next one, or the next one, or the next one. So there's always that, in a sense, hope and movement right at the heart of the teaching. That every moment it's possible for you to engage in cessation. To stop leaking that stuff. Um, I think it varies, but I think often the, the movement is, you know, through the difficulty comes the peace, often. It's only through what I'm calling acknowledgement, really profound acknowledgement, which also is an allowing to let go that that peace that you're talking about comes about. You know, if there's elements of repression in it, then it's still going to come up. It's somehow being fed as well, nurtured, nourished. There's something called ahara goes on as well, which is called feeding. We feed these things. We can feed our habits, which is what we do. We feed them. We feed our neuroses. Now, this is the opposite of that, because it's allowing them to be in that space of compassion and kindness. Um, and, And in that space of compassion and kindness, where there is acknowledgement, there can be release from it. And that's, I think, the piece that you're really talking about. Yeah. But tending to your teachings now, listening to them, taking them on board, is not feeding the articles at all at this moment, is it? Hopefully. But 
Well, you think, well, I'm going to go and buy ten copies of this talk. Yeah, and this is, well, I mean, there's all sorts of ways we can keep on feeding these things. But the point is, and this is, I'm going to finish this off on a positive note here, which is remember that that moment that we're feeding can be changed if we really see it clearly. Yeah, and that seeing it clearly, actually, I think for most of us, is allowing it into that space of kindness and, ca- and ca- compassion and love, yeah, both for ourselves and others. Yeah. When we can do that, when we can really do that, allow it into that space, there is a wonderful sense of release. Because yeah, you can let it go. <laughs> okay, I will finish there. <laughs> Okay, thank you. As in what's called the Nidana Sangyuta, which is Sangyuta Nikaya, which is part of the canon, there is what's called transcendent dependent origination. Another form of of dependencies and origination, which actually is moving towards liberation. Here, and this is the one that goes here, and it's quite it's quite an interesting one. Yep, I can read it really slowly. Okay, conditioned by suffering, there is trust or confidence. And I'll say a little bit more about that if you want me to. So, conditioned by suffering, there is trust or confidence. Conditioned by trust and confidence, there is gladness. Conditioned by gladness, there is joy. Conditioned by joy, there is tranquility. Conditioned by tranquility, there arises happiness. Conditioned by happiness, there arises concentration. And conditioned by concentration, there is knowledge and vision of what truly is. Conditioned by knowledge and vision of what truly is, there is disenchantment. And conditioned by disenchantment, there is dispassion. And conditioned by dispassion, there is freedom. Conditioned by freedom, there is knowledge that the defilements have finally been destroyed. That's transcendent dependent origination. <laughs> I'll try and get a copy of that for you if you want a copy of that. Yes. Mm. That That's right. Yeah. Exactly the same way. But it's putting in different components into each thing. But notice that the first two are very, very important, which is obviously the understanding of dukkha. When you understand dukkha from the Buddha's perspective here and understand that there is a teaching towards the eradication, there arises, well, what's usually translated as faith, but really is trust or confidence that the teaching will take you there. And those are the first two steps. So usually at the beginning of any of the major lists, of, you know, for example, what's something called the seven treasures within the text, there often is right at the front, front, front of that trust or confidence in the teaching that it will take you there. Not in the whole thing, but in the elements that you know will lead you because you've already seen and established yourself in that there is dukkha. And there is a cause to dukkha. You might have trust and confidence as a cessation to it in that way. Okay, that end of story. That is it. <laughs> Tonight.
Okay, thanks. I will copy it. I'll get, it, I'll get a copy tomorrow morning. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.